Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Scott Luton, and welcome to today's edition of This Week in Business History for the week of August 23rd, 2021. Hey, before we dive into today's story, we should probably say happy birthday to the National Business League. It was formed on August 23rd, 1900 by Dr. Booker T. Washington. The National Business League is the nation's first and oldest business organization. It was formed 12 years before President William Howard Taft prompted the formation of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Today, the National Business League is a not-for-profit, nonpartisan, and commerce-driven institution dedicated to the economic empowerment of black businesses, communities, and people. The organization has over 120,000 members nationwide, and currently, one of the biggest initiatives is building and implementing what is being touted as the country's first black supplier development program. So according to the National Business League, about 95% of black-owned businesses today, well, they're mainly one-employee, home-based enterprises. Many consider those to be micro-businesses. Of those, less than 3% are minority or agency certified, so the vast majority cannot successfully participate in contracting and procurement opportunities with large companies and governments. The National Business League, in partnership with Stellantis, one of the world's leading automakers, well, they're setting out to change that. I'll include a couple links for more information in the show notes of today's episode. You can also learn more at nationalbusinessleague.org. Okay, so back to today's show here on This Week in Business History. Speaking of birthdays, so today's my birthday, and growing up, I used to celebrate my birthday with my dear grandfather, Leroy Winton Rutland. His birthday was August 21st. Mine was August 23rd. The families would usually already be together that week, so we just shared birthday cake and enjoyed the ensuing stories that would always be told. It was a very special part of my upbringing, and Dick Rutland, which is how most folks referred to him, was one of the most influential people in my life, and frankly, he continues to shape many of my daily behaviors. So I thought it'd be fun to build an episode around some of the businesses and products that were big parts of his life. So today we're going to be diving into five key components of Dick Rutland's business journey. So for our regular listeners, this is going to be a little different approach. So bear with me as I want to honor one of the most impactful business leaders that I've ever come to know. Stay tuned. And as always, thanks again for joining us on this episode of This Week in Business History powered by our team here at Supply Chain Now. 
So for starters, I thought it might be helpful to share a little background on my granddad. He was born in Lexington County in South Carolina in 1922. He grew up on a small farm and they didn't have much. I can recall granddad talking about how he didn't like chitlins, which is basically food produced from the large intestines of a hog. But because they had to consume every bit of the hog for food, he came to know how to eat them, how to eat those chitlins. And I can't say that I'm envious of that culinary experience. Nothing was wasted during his childhood. And that type of mentality would stick with my granddad throughout his entire life. Wouldn't it be nice if that was more of the prevailing attitude in the world today? Imagine some of the critical business challenges that would be more meaningfully addressed. Dick Rutland served his country during World War II with the U.S. Coast Guard and eventually would enter the world of retail working as a store manager with a grocery store named Winn-Dixie. So number one on our list of five key components of Dick Rutland's business journey, let's learn more about Winn-Dixie. The store traces its roots to Burley, Idaho, where William Milton Davis and his family operated Davis Mercantile. Now, Davis would borrow $10,000 from his father and move to Miami, Florida in 1925. Eventually, Davis would establish a small chain of stores, and his four sons would grow the enterprise, acquiring other chains. In 1955, the brothers would make one of their bigger acquisitions, buying the 117-store Dixie home chain. They chose to combine the names, giving us Winn-Dixie that still operates today. Now, the company is part of Southeastern Grocers, formerly Bilo, and you can find about 500 Winn-Dixie stores primarily throughout the Southeast. But I bet you didn't know that Winn-Dixie is why the Mayo Clinic can be found in Jacksonville. Back in 1934, William Davis would pass away due to pneumonia, and his family thought it could have been prevented. So the Davis family reached out to the Mayo Clinic and donated 400 acres of land for a new clinic there in Florida. Now my granddad worked really long hours, really hard hours at Winn-Dixie, and he was seemingly always on call. The world of retail has evolved quite a bit since the 50s and 60s, but the demanding nature of the work has not changed for many in the industry. In fact, the irregular hours and the time away from his family would have Dick Rutland looking at another big opportunity, which we'll touch on momentarily. Now, one last note on Winn-Dixie, as the company not only employed my granddad and my own father at various times, but I worked at Winn-Dixie in high school, stocking shelves and bagging grocery at the princely rate of $4.35 an hour. Now, you might recall the Czech brand of soft drinks that Winn-Dixie was well known for. They offered a version of Dr. Pepper called Dr. Czech and a version of Mountain Dew called Country Mist. I spent plenty of hours each week stocking the soft drink aisle with the real and knockoff colas. Now for number two on our list, we're going to move from the retail sector to the manufacturing industry. Now, as I mentioned, Dick Rutland highly valued his time with his family. He and my grandmother Hazel had four daughters and one son. The long, unpredictable, irregular retail hours at Winn-Dixie was cutting into family time each week, every day you could say. He was at the store for this reason or that reason every day of the week. Ultimately, the burnout would lead to my granddad making a career move 
that would bring him to Aiken, South Carolina in 1969. Now, Aiken sits just west of Augusta, across the Savannah River that separates the states of Georgia and South Carolina. The city was founded in 1835 and named for William Aiken, the first president of the South Carolina Railroad and Canal Company. But Aiken's history would change dramatically in 1950 when the Atomic Energy Commission and the DuPont Company would announce the construction of the Savannah River plant to produce tritium and plutonium for hydrogen bombs. Over 38,000 workers constructed more than 200 structures in the buildup of the 300 square mile site, which is still operated today. The tens of thousands of employees that the site would put to work brought a ton of needs and economic activity to the area. It was transformative for Aiken and the region. Now Beach Island is an unincorporated community in eastern Aiken County. Perhaps it's most famous as being where James Brown, the godfather of soul, aka Mr. Dynamite, lived near the end of his life. But it's not an island. The town was initially named Beach Highland, but over time the H disappeared and locals began referring to Beach Highland as Beach Island. In 1965, Kimberly Clark Corporation announced that it was building an operation in Beach Island. In 1968, operations began at the new mill where diapers, tissue, and paper towels, amongst other things, began to be manufactured. This new operation would hire my uncle Richard, my granddad's only son, and the new plant was hiring left and right at the time. Now knowing my granddad's frustration with the retail rat race, Uncle Richard would bring him a Kimberly Clark paper application. Fill it out. Come join me, my uncle would say. That application would sit on my granddad's counter for at least several weeks, if not longer. But fate would intervene and the grocery store would ask one task too many. And granddad would take that application, submit it, get interviewed, and was soon hired on with Kimberly Clark to work as a machine operator at the plant there in Beach Island. It was an active role that kept him busy, but it also offered regular shift hours so he could plan his family time around his work and be home on a regular basis. It also offered great benefits. I've been told that Dick Rutland, like every job he's ever had, he always did it by the book. If he got 30 minutes for lunch, he'd only take that half hour, never one second more before he was right back at his station making it happen. This resonates so well with me. You know, as during my time volunteering at a food shelter with my granddad, our breaks were always very structured, never a minute too long, even when we weren't getting paid. You know, given my deep passion and love for the manufacturing industry, one of my greatest regrets in life is not being able to talk shop with my granddad, interview him and learn a lot more about his experiences working in manufacturing with Kimberly Clark. The company is one of the biggest CPG manufacturers in the world. They've got recognizable brands such as Huggies, Kleenex, and Cottonelle. Hey, you may have been hoarding some of their products here in recent times. The company's been in business for almost 150 years, and it had over $19 billion in sales in 2020. Not only is the Beach Island Mill one of the company's largest in North America, but here in the age of the toilet paper crunch, the South Carolina-based operation is one of the largest TP manufacturing sites in the world. Dick Rutland would work at the plant from 1969 until his retirement in the late 80s. 
I can still remember the surprise retirement party that my family held for Granddad. Very special day. For number three in our list of five key components of Dick Rutland's business journey, we're going to shift from his employers to a couple of his favorite products. So I would graduate from South Aiken High School in 1994, but really had no interest in continuing my education, at least at the time. I would call the military recruiter's office and I had decided to enlist in the United States Air Force. Not long after I'd left for basic training in San Antonio, Dick Rutland would pop a big bumper sticker on the back of his Buick that read, my grandson serves in the United States Air Force. Now, if I can recall correctly, granddad would drive several Buicks in his lifetime. The vehicle emblazoned with the Air Force bumper sticker was the full-size LeSabre four-door sedan, which the company stopped making in 2005. I believe he also drove a Buick Electra Park Avenue in the 1980s. So let's talk about Buick for a second. So Buick Motor Company was founded by David Dunbar Buick in 1903. William C. Durant, who would later go on to start General Motors, would serve as one of Buick's first general managers and and would certainly be a big investor in the company. From 1908 to 1919, Buick would be General Motors' best-selling line. The famous Buick Tri-Shield logo that's found on every vehicle, well, that was based on the family crest of the founder, David Dunbar Buick. In 1992, a Buick convertible was the star of one of our favorite movies in the Luton household. My cousin Vinny focused on two New Yorkers that were driving their mint green 1964 Buick Skylark convertible through the back roads of Alabama when they got unexpectedly involved in a local murder. The Skylark, which of course could never be confused with a Corvette, at least according to automotive expert witness Mona Lisa Vito, Well, that would be manufactured by Buick for about 46 years. So fast forward almost 20 years here in 2021, Buick's biggest market is China, where a whopping 80% of Buick branded automobiles are sold. For item four on our list, let's talk red solo cups. You know, it's amazing what you remember about special people in your life and surprising about some of the things that you completely forget. My sister Chrissy reminded me about Granddad's unique use of the iconic red Solo cup. They were ubiquitous in the Rutland household, but as I shared earlier, there was no notion of use and toss with Dick Rutland. He reused everything. He'd use a plastic red Solo cup and then wash it by hand or sometimes in the dishwasher, and it would last weeks, if not longer. Now about the Solo Cup Company. It had been founded in Chicago by South Dakota native Leo Holzman in 1936. His son Robert was one of his whopping 10 children and that's who came up with the idea of a thick cup made out of molded polystyrene. Leo would poll his kids, hey what colors should we make these cups in? They responded red, blue, yellow, and peach. Now you've probably never poured a beer or a ice cold Diet Coke into a peach Solo cup because that color didn't make it. And even though the red Solo cup has become a cultural icon, it wasn't Leo's favorite color. That would be blue. But where did the name Solo come from? Well, one version of the story has members of the Holzman family sitting around the kitchen table talking business. 
and one of the folks said the phrase, so high in quality, so low in price. And bam, a legend was born, supposedly. Unfortunately for the Holtzman family, but probably very fortunately for the Holtzman family's finances, a private equity company took control of Solo Cup in 2006. And in 2012, the Dart Container Corporation, the largest manufacturer of cups and containers in the world, well, they acquired Solo Cup. Based in Mason, Michigan and owned by the Dart family, this private company has about 13,000 employees worldwide and prides itself on its vertically integrated approach. The Solo Cup acquisition essentially doubled the size of the Dart Container Corporation. Now for our fifth and final item on our list of five key components of Dick Rutland's business journey, I want to talk values. It's not a brand, it's not an employer, it's not a product, but I would argue that values was perhaps the most critical aspect of my granddad's business journey. Now in my 45th year in this world, and especially with the soon to be eight years as a founder and entrepreneur with that experience under my belt, I've had the fortune, both good and bad, to rub elbows with a wide variety of leaders and professionals. Some with questionable values, judgment, and moral conviction. And all those were critical lessons learned, lessons that had to be learned so they could be applied in the path forward. And fortunately, I've had the exceptional opportunity to work and collaborate with some of the most principled and ethical people of our time. But when I think of the gold standard, that would be my granddad, Dick Rutland. So I'd like to share so much with you about his approach to work and his approach to business from an indomitable work ethic to an unquestionable integrity to the being the perfect illustration of action-based servant leadership. All that and then some. But what I'd like to focus on is Dick Rutland's lifetime of dedicated giving and his generous spirit. You'd never hear him talking about what he did for others. But if you watched him in action, you'd know. Granddad never liked to see anyone in need. It was one of the reasons he helped to create and staff a food shelter in Aiken, which still operates to help others some 30 years later. I recall a stranger knocking on his door one Sunday afternoon and asking for money to take a bus back home. Now, I don't know if the visitor was a former colleague or had known of Granddad's generosity through some other means, but he received the cash that day to be on his way. But more than money, you know, my Granddad was a man of modest means. He didn't graduate as an executive in the manufacturing industry, but it was his generosity when it came to his time and his energy and his willingness to work. And of course, his abundant faith. All of that which benefited hundreds if not thousands of individuals that crossed paths with him. Visiting those in the hospital, uplifting their spirits, personally delivering food and supplies out to families in need, working on home improvement projects for those unable to do it for themselves. I could go on and on. Leroy Winton Rutland was the gold standard for how leaders lead, especially by example, and his legacy bears that out. Francis of Assisi once famously stated, quote, the deeds you do may be the only sermon some persons will hear today, end quote. In that case, I am very thankful then and very grateful for all the preaching that my granddad did every single day he lived. 
a life very well lived, and a man mightily missed by all. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History, a special, unique episode. Big thanks to you, our listener, for tuning into the show each and every week. And be sure you find us wherever you get your podcast from. Click subscribe so you don't miss a single future episode. And of course, we're always grateful for those podcast reviews on, on Apple or any other podcast player that may be your favorite. On behalf of the entire team here this week in business history and supply chain now, this is Scott Luton wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. Hey, do good, give forward, and be the change that's needed. Be just like Dick Rutland. Man, the world will be a much better place. But hey, on that positive note, we'll see you next time right here on This Week in Business History. Thanks, everybody.